You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, July 14th, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Tara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. The Skeptics Take Manhattan. <laughs> and we have a special guest, Bill Nye the Guy. <laughs> Greetings. What, what kind of guy are you again, Bill? What kind of guy are you? Sure, yes. Why wouldn't it be? Right. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> no, but there used to be hyphen. Bill Nye Science Guy is now just one word. Uh, and I, it was uh, organic. I didn't uh, derive it that way. So anyway, it's, thank you for including me. Yeah, our pleasure. So something interesting happened last night when we were at dinner. We've been talking for a long time about the Impossible Burger, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, some of us on stage here kind of like meat. But, yeah, there's issues, <laughs> environmental issues, uh, with the sustainability of beef especially, unfortunately. So, Kara, you've been pushing. setting, pushing, pushing. You've been setting yeah. our expectations very high <laughs> for the fact that the Impossible Burger, which is like a veggie burger with heme in it, right? yeah. how good it is, and we all got to take a bite of one for the first time last night. What did you guys think about it? I liked it. I mean, it's not... It's not a charbroiled beef burger, but it tasted good. It, you know, when it crumbled, you know, you can see that it was cooking like meat, like it was red on the inside, and it was it was cooked like, a, like what you would expect a hamburger to look like. It had a more wheat flavor to it. Doesn't have that beef flavor, yeah. right? But yeah. I mean, overall, I could easily see me swapping fifty percent of my meat with something like that. I could start sure. with that. I think I need to get used to it, and I would do that. I I, I liked it. I mean, it, it, you put enough ketchup on almost anything, and I'll eat it. <laughs> So we're talking about the future of food. And so the, the example we love to give everybody, there was a time when you could only feed lobster to prisoners in New England twice a week because it was considered this junk food or uh, junk fish. And so don't be surprised if people's tastes change. And when I ask the culinary community, and I know you're here, sure you are, is uh, instead of having food that is derived from traditional foods. This is the Impossible Burger. This is just like a burger, only different. Tastes just like chicken or whatever the heck it is. Have some new thing. This is the new food that you're all going to want to embrace. And so I'm excited about the future food-wise. Insects. Insects are are good. They're the moderation. They're also not really the future because many cultures have been eating insects for a very long time. Yeah. Our future. They're our future. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's good. Or this culture. This our, couple, all right, that's this enough. The world's that, like, seriously. <laughs> no. No, I was trained from childhood to, to not eat bugs. And it's, come on, it's disgusting. It's that's seriously. Right. You don't have to eat whole bugs. You just grind them up. Yeah. That's even worse. No cricket flour. Well, you guys, have you ever had a lobster? You can tell us. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so there's a, it's an arthropod with a bunch of appendages. Yeah. And we, uh, higher up on the food pyramid, have no trouble killing them and eating them. And so there are certain parts of the world where people eat insects in the same way. Well, I mean, why don't we make 
like we'll pick an insect and we'll make it really big, well, that, and that, then we'll pull the meat out of it, and well, then I'm okay with it. But when you eat, because we don't eat the claws and we don't eat the antennas. Okay, 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 everybody. Next time you're at dinner with Jay, ask for the claws of the lobster because he doesn't eat them. Jay, that's the best part. I'm going to remind the most muscle. I'm going to remind Not you. Not that it's all about carnivorousness. <laughs> when you're, eating, when you're eating bugs, I'm going to remember that show we did when you said you hated bugs and now yeah, you're eating bugs? I'll also be wearing a garbage bag for clothing at that point, right? So well, it'll be okay. But it'll have, and the, the bib will have a big cricket on it instead of a lobster. <laughs> People eat crab. And uh, they are appendages that, that we They're the insects of the sea, right? Crustaceans. And you know. Uh, another important thing or interesting thing to keep in mind if you eat any type of fish or seafood is almost all the fish that do anything eat other fish. Yeah. There's oh, a few yeah. fish way down on the pyramid that don't eat fish. Like krill? Yeah, well, um, yeah, the plankton eat those plankton eaters. Uh, but most of the fish eat fish. It's just... It's just, it's just troubling. It's a fish. <laughs> world. That's what... So our, uh, the episode that, that we record when we're at Nexus is always our Perry DeAngelis Memorial episode. Uh, that's really how Nexus got its start. You know, it was out of doing, coming to New York to do, to do the, uh, the SGU. And, of course, over the years, we've lost other people very close to the SGU who were integral um, to, to producing the show, like uh, Mike LaSalle, um, and you know Jay's friend Michael Otercelli. Yeah, Michael Otercelli. Uh and David Young, who was um, the the founder of the Hong Kong Skeptics, became a good friend of ours, and we really collaborated on a lot, on a lot of things. Uh, unfortunately, died two years ago. Yeah, now, right. Of, yeah. of ALS. Oh, so there's a, ton, a lot more people, obviously, in the skeptical movement. But these are the, you know, this really is you know uh, the Perry DeAngelis Memorial. But we include the people who were especially close to the SGU who we lost along the way as well. So just we always like to remember them at the beginning beginning of our Nexus shows. So this guy, uh, Mallet, is a professor of physics. Um, he's not a physicist, he's an actual physicist. <laughs> at the University of Connecticut, and he's, you see that device right there? He is working on a time machine. That's not a time machine. Um, it's called a clock. Ron Mallet, yeah. But so time machine. This was run by the BBC as if it were news. <laughs> BBC is actually better than better than most, but um, the article was a little on the credulous side, saying that yeah, scientists really think time travel is possible. No, I don't, I don't think they do. Uh, well, we're traveling through time right now. Yeah, well, it just sucks. <laughs> you only go one way. Yeah, I know one way at, a, at one speed. Unless you're moving really, really fast, or you park near yeah. a black hole or something. Even which astronauts barely get yeah, a leg yeah. up. So you're, this is the. This part of physics where if you built a time machine, it could only go back in time to when the machine was built, mm -hmm. right? Is that the... Well, we don't know. I mean, so this is... He's only at the theoretical stage. What oh, whereas that other thing I just said is well established. Well, meaning that he's not, even, he's not even at the point where he's, like, saying how it works. He's just trying to establish some basic principles. He, his theory is that if you have... What this device is supposed to be doing, like really high-powered lasers arranged in, arranged in some kind of spiral that you could actually twist space. And since space and, since space and time are connected, this would also warp time. 
And that's going to be, I guess, the engine of his time machine. So, simple enough. Yeah. Uh, and then my understanding was you had to go at relativistic speeds to achieve this. This is uh, He hasn't gotten years. there yet, okay? Yeah, <laughs> might not. Well, I, was with, I was with a congressman from a certain U.S. state who said, well, until you guys get faster than light travel, I don't even want to talk about you know, NASA. Like, what? Okay, <laughs> sir, really, you know, you're, you're a member of governing of the most powerful... Uh, okay. Bill, there were so many comebacks to that. Until you guys balance the effing budget, I don't even want to talk to you. you know, like, well, at least that's plausible. Yeah. Uh, but I was, you know, we're trying to win hearts and minds. Yeah. It just yeah. shows you... Don't send me to the government. That's the takeaway. Yeah, so it's, uh, it shows you sort of how... Let's put it this way. It's all about me. I have failed as a science educator, when people don't realize the great difficulty of going at these extraordinary speeds and mm-hmm. trying to reverse the arrow of time or change it or something. Right. Yeah. But anyway, the scientific process. How, how was, it's all me, so how was, how was this article received? Was there a string of comments and so on? Yeah, so it's, it's always the usual mix now. When you, what, I, what I find is you have the skeptics and the, and the true believers kind of commenting, you know. Um, they're usually, you know, people do give pushback, which is good. They, but the article goes on to talk about wormholes, as if that's somehow relevant to what this guy's doing. Oh, wormholes! Yeah, yeah wormholes. Sure, I saw them in the movie. It's like the yeah. So the argument. So wormhole physicists say that a wormhole you can travel in time. Therefore, it's possible. And this guy's building a machine to yeah, do it. But that's but that just the author. It's not doesn't reflect on the actual science that's going on here. There's no science there. there so yeah. Well, right. that's, he, or he, he, this is only version 1.0 of the machine that he's building, and I did some further research. He did, it does have a 2.0 version where he's getting a little bit farther along. No joke, who's... <laughs> so for those of you listening, it's a, it's a, I guess a British... It's a TARDIS. It's a TARDIS. <laughs> oh, oh, it's a, oh. The TARDIS from Doctor Who, yeah. yeah. Which that wasn't really real. No. No. <laughs> Hey, wait, no, wait. I reread that book. It's okay. Is the whole, is the whole news item fake now? No, the whole news item is real. This is just a psychic. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that works. So who would pay for this thing? Well, right now he's just doing it out of, I guess, his budget at the University of Connecticut. <laughs> so for you tri-staters, these are some of your tax dollars at work. Yeah, we're paying for it. Kara, yeah. um, by now... We've talked about Utsi a lot on the show. Um, I think anyone is interested in the story. Is it Utsi? I say Utsi. Utsi. Is it like Utsi? It's, it's got the it's umlauts like, or whatever they are. Utsi. Utsi. This a guy was found Utsi. in the glacier in Switzerland. Yeah. 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 Five thousand between Austria and Italy. Um, yeah, it was fifty two hundred years ago. Fifty two hundred years. They had aluminum foil back then. No, they found wow. him. They found him in nineteen ninety one. It was actually hikers that found him, just like people who were hiking. Yeah. Um, he was at like three thousand feet elevation um, when they found him, and he was really well preserved. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best. The best preserved, oldest European um, mummy. We would call him a mummy. Um, and there's some new research about Utsi. A, a few new studies have come out recently. There was one study that described some of the tools that he, he was found with. But, but the study that I want to focus on first, going back to this picture, these researchers are actually dissecting out his stomach contents. Now, it's really interesting that they couldn't find his stomach for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. He's been a bit of an enigma for a, for a while because of the way that his body is desiccated. Um, they were having a hard time locating 
the stomach. They've been able to sample some of the contents of his guts, of his intestines, and they found that he had some parasites. So we've known that for quite a while. But uh, finally, through following his stones, actually, they were able, not those stones. <laughs> <laughs> Told you we're done just with one puppet track theater. Track. His, his gallstones. Oh, <laughs> they were able to follow up to find the the contents of his stomach. And there's been a lot of, I think, good reporting around this article that shared a lot about, you know, standard um, fare, I suppose, in Otzi's day. We now know that he had eaten, let's see, I have Some to listen. Some muley? What do you think? Some uh, uh, gruel, uh, 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 something made from grains into a cereal. Insects. Something, something made from grains into a cereal. Well, I like that you say that because I think part of the reason that this is such an interesting news story is because of the push, the recent push in the pseudoscientific kind of health literature of eating paleo. Yeah. Like he's very paleo. Well, I just right? think that would be what's available. He would he eat what was eat, available. And he also I'm, ate meat? Is that what you're driving at? So he actually, 50% of his stomach contents were um, high, high-fat meat. He was eating dried ibex meat and fat. Mm-hmm. They yeah, think it was probably dried so that he could carry like with jerk, his pack. Kind of Almost jerky. like jerky, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, red deer and also something called einkorn wheat, so einkorn some sort wheat. of yeah, cereal. Yeah. Um and traces of a fern that's actually known to be toxic. And there are a lot of hypotheses about why he would have those traces. Perhaps it was some sort of ancient medicinal thing because they did find that he had a lot of parasites in his gut, Um, but that's a bit of a stretch. More likely, he used it to wrap his food as a wrapper, and then... um, But here's the interesting thing. 5,200 years ago, people were running around in Mesopotamia building pyramids, right? Mm -hmm. About the same time, writing the Bible. And this guy was jumping around on a glacier. He was a hunter-gatherer. He was like in that tradition at this point. And, um, and a lot of the research, you know, a lot of this paleo fad, this paleo diet fad seems to have come out of some kind of shoddy research. And there's, there's some good coverage right now about looking back at these historical trends and diets, these, um, these paleo trends and diets. And they tend to be, higher fat, higher meat diets, but it's also, people are starting to realize that it's a very, very biased sample of um, individuals, and there's no accounting for time of year when these studies were done. There's no accounting for availability. You know, a lot of these people were in um, glacial areas, and so because of that, there may not have been a lot of plant matter available to them. But when you look at ancient remains from the tropics, for example, there's actually a lot more plant matter in their guts. And so kind of the the takeaway from all of this is that there was no one paleo diet that, just like you said, people were eating what was available to them. And there's no reason to think that Otzi was any healthier than we are today because he was eating Ibex meat. Like, we shouldn't all go out and fanatically buy Ibex meat. He actually was a little bit unhealthy. But also, he was 45 years old. Which is pretty cool. That's pretty, that's pretty so old good. for that time. Yeah. Those 35. were the days. He weighed 135 pounds. He was 5'5". Five five, that's what they think. He's kind of a good-looking dude. It's a little good-looking. <laughs> D- didn't he have um, worn-down molars from, from chewing a lot of grains? There's a ton of research that's been done on this bot. He's probably the most studied of Okay, but then why couldn't grains. they find the stomach? That right? Was, yeah, I know. That's, that's odd. Yeah. Well, get this. Guess how long it took before they figured out how he died. 
This is the best story. Yeah. Uh, How long? Years, right? Three like years? Ten years. Ten years? Ten years until they realized. Well, so the, best, the story, I know I think we've told this on the show before. So they couldn't figure out how he died. They were looking for pathology, for, for trauma, for whatever. And they had all the x-rays and CT scans. And it was years of looking at these x-rays before somebody noticed an obvious arrowhead right in his back. <laughs> like, and you look at the x-ray now, like, how could they possibly have missed that for years they're studying these x-rays and clearly it's a it's just a great real world example of inattentional blindness yeah. they weren't looking for an arrowhead they were looking for pathology or trauma or whatever and they didn't wow. see what they weren't looking for and and there was like a huge head slapping moment for the researchers when, they, when they, somebody saw the, the finally the arrowhead maybe that did it right there and also by the way i mean he's he's nude here for the autopsy of the they've done multiple autopsies on him at this point but he was clothed and they were able to find clothing there's so much great evidence coming yeah, off yeah. of Otzi, and they were able to learn a lot about the fashions of the time um, there's this like not only did they find the air there's a, a clear Hole Boom. ripped yeah, through yeah, his clothing yeah. where the arrowhead went into his back, and nobody noticed. Yeah. So he was shot in the back on a glacier. Yeah. So the idea is they wow. think that he, you know, went down to to hunt to collect food, um, and that he ran into some trouble. Sure. Well, let me. We can turn to the tools. <laughs> yes. Yes. Let me, so the the this is a totally separate research team looking at his tools. Published he, one week previously. Yeah. So he had, he had mostly flint was the tools that he was using, um, and they were worn down. So you know, flint's a terrible medium. It was the best that they had at the time. But they would have to constantly sharpen it by flaking off new, new fresh pieces. Mm -hmm. And you only get a few uses out of a flint spearhead or a dagger or, or a slicer or a scraper or whatever. And his tools were all worn down to the point where they needed to be replaced. And he didn't have that many in his yeah, kit either. Yeah, he did have, he had a copper dagger, but the, the point was broken off. And they think he just wore it for show as an ornament. So wait a second. That's, the, the time frame is wrong though. If he, if he had copper on no, him. No, this is copper age. He's copper age. Yeah. 5200. That's not paleo. Well, yeah. Well, paleo is a catch-all. Yeah. 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 Well, I know, so he's but definitely a copper age. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. If he's carrying tools with him, also that's not paleo. Yeah. So, and he had a copper axe. Yeah. As well. That's right, Copper. That, that's right. <laughs> and those were probably really his like most valuable possessions oh, yeah. at the time. So that's probably why they killed him. Well, no, but they didn't take yeah. him. They were they with him. Right? So no, it was, was revenge. He was well, shot in the back. He was running. So it's, it's interesting. It's a 5,000-year-old murder mystery, yeah. and we do have some clues. So we, the, the, the thinking now is this is all inference, right? So the researchers speculate maybe he would, because he, the day before he was killed, he actually was headed down into a local village. And they know that because they also found in his guts um, some some flowers that he probably picked not on the glacier but down in on the foot of the mountain. Einkorn wheat flower? No, 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 not flower. Like flowers, like dandelions. Oh, dandelion. Like he he yeah. had eaten some local Bill, flora. Yeah, they yeah. actually recreated the yeah. entire week before yeah. he died. Like the food that he ate throughout the right, week. Right, right. Because yeah, you get, that's about how long it takes for things to work. Mm -hmm. Totally worked the way through. So he went down to the village probably to exchange, you know, get new tools because his tools were spent, um, and then he immediately went back up into the glacier, and at, while he was in the village, because the timing works out about right, he had a deep gash on his right hand, like between his thumb and his index finger. So he had a bad injury, and he didn't stay there to get attended to. He got a bad injury and then fled the village up into the glacier. So it kind of seems like 
he had an encounter. Yeah, he robbed someone, maybe. Or maybe they were, some, some people were hunting him down or whatever. There they was found some conflict. Him. He had a conflict. Yeah. He fled. They <laughs> tracked him down and shot him in the back and left him for dead and yeah. didn't take his stuff, which was valuable. And yeah. once they discovered the, the actual arrow wound mm-hmm. in his back, um, they realized that he would have definitely died of that wound, mm-hmm. that it, he would have had so much blood loss that even in modern a modern medical setting, somebody may not have survived yeah. a wound like that. And the guys that killed him, they clearly didn't play video games because you always loot the body. You always loot. They didn't loot the body. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it's for a 5,200-year-old murder mystery, yeah. we actually have a pretty good theory. A lot of forensics on this. No, su- no suspects, though. No suspects. <laughs> really they didn't make it. Yeah. Suspects didn't we'll call CSI OTC. <laughs> I would actually love to see a movie recreating our best guess at this guy's sure. the yeah, last week of his life. That'd be fascinating. It's funny how confident you could see him. Imagine if you had a, if you had a time machine, if that guy built <laughs> one, you could see what really happened. He, he steals an arrow and he, he slides it in his shirt and he's running. He slips on the ice <laughs> and he stabs him in the back. Like, Nobody totally shot him. It was a stupid accident. That's why the arrow had washed down. Centuries later. (laughs) 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 All right. Evan, who is this girl? This is Alyssa Carson. I don't know if anyone else out there knows who she is. I just saw an interview with uh, at least one person. I just saw an interview with her a few days ago, and I'm kind of embarrassed I I hadn't heard about her before. Um, She's 17 years old, and uh, her life's goal is to go to Mars. And she is, well, on her way, certainly further than just about most people on the planet to achieving that goal. Uh, she's currently undergoing uh, serious training with NASA in order to become part of what will hopefully be the first human mission to Mars whenever that takes place. Is she a junior in high school, 17? Uh, a junior rising. or senior, yes. Yeah, she is rising. in high school. Yeah, she is. Her list of accomplishments is impressive. She is the youngest person to ever graduate Advanced Space Academy. She's also the first person in the world to have completed all three NASA space camps, the one in the United States, one in Canada, and one in Turkey. Furthermore, she is the first and only person to complete the NASA Passport Program, having visited all 14 of NASA's visitor centers located across the United States. In January of 2013, she was invited to join NASA TV's MER, MER-10 panel in Washington, D.C. to discuss future missions to Mars. She was later chosen as one of the seven ambassadors for Mars One, which we've talked about before on the show, which is the mission to establish a colony on the planet. And in October of 2016, she graduated the Advanced Possum Academy, making her the youngest person ever to be officially certified to go to outer space. Now, has any of this slowed her down in her schoolwork? No, not at all. She's getting perfect grades in all of her subjects, and she's doing them in four languages, and she's currently working on a fifth language. She's English, Chinese, French, uh, Spanish, and she's learning Turkish as well. Wow. Oh, but is she oh, Kurdish? You know, it's important Turkish, right now. Well, yeah, Kurdish, Kurdish, yes. Yeah, it's important to learn Russian right now for astronauts. I would think so. Yeah. No, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know if you heard about this, there's some trouble between the U.S. and Russia. <laughs> I haven't heard about it. What's yeah, happening? Don't worry about it. It's nothing. Uh, it's it's nothing all in the emails, right? Nothing to see there. Uh, but uh, still, if you want to go to the International Space Station right now, you have to go on a Russian rocket. And this, so where some of the commerce between the United States and Russia is right now is in space. And, of course, there's all this pressure from U.S. Congressman, the U.S. military to develop 
rocket engines here in the U.S. to compete with the Russian engines, which work very well. And so uh, if she's learning languages, I wouldn't be surprised if she's learning Russian. And then one note. We like to discourage the use of the term colonize. Uh-huh. We want to go with settle. Oh, I thought you were going to say conquer. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> How about invade? Invade? That's yeah. great. Incursion. Incursion. No, but it's just saying so. Uh, if you're going to throw words around, settling's better. Okay. But as we always say, just to start this fight, this discussion, once again, <laughs> I just don't think, do you want to settle Antarctica? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not. I mean, I guess, if you're really, really motivated. I mean, people tried settling Greenland, and it sort of worked for a while. Yeah. But it's just, it's a really hostile place. You guys, there's very little water, and to get the water, you have to work pretty hard. There's nothing to eat. And the other thing that you will notice immediately, there's nothing to breathe. <laughs> so you guys, this whole romantic, no, we're going to go live off the land on Mars you know, with extraordinary you know, uh, fusion reactors that fit in an egg carton and whatever that, yeah. which may be coming. But you're going to live in a dome. And when you go outside in your spacesuit, you're just in another dome. Mm-hmm. What's her name on, uh, on SpongeBob? Cindy, the squirrel. Yeah. Yeah, you, that's Sandy. what you're going to be like. <laughs> Sandy. Sandy, Sand, excuse me. Sandy, the squirrel. Uh, you're going to be in another dome. I mean, it all sounds cool, and I want to go as long as I can come back. Mm-hmm. But uh, visiting the ice sheet in Greenland, you get, where you can breathe, uh, you get a sense. There's no yeah. living off the land. I mean, you, no, there's nothing we, to shoot or, or grow or whatever the heck. We'd have to bring our infrastructure entirely. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, we do in Antarctica. Right. I mean, generally, we have a science base there, make extraordinary discoveries about the ozone layer and climate writ large and the nature of ice and all that. But it's not like you're going to go there and set up a, a playground and raise kids. It's just now, too hostile. Alyssa told her father when she was three years old after she saw a cartoon called The Backyard Again, and I happen to remember this one, about uh, they went to Mars, you know, and that was what the cartoon was about. And that inspired her. She turned to her father and said, Daddy, I want to be one of the people who, who go to Mars. So that inspired her to sort of go on to this path. So if she didn't have that dream or that inspiration, could we say she necessarily would have chosen this kind of path for her life? Sure. TV rules. Uh, So 2033, rather, is a very good orbital opportunity, as we say in the space biz. So you can only go to Mars practically every 26 months, every year, two years and a little bit. And so 2033 is a good one, but in uh, my little world at the Planetary Society, we imagine uh, 2033 will be an orbital opportunity. In other words, people will go to Mars and orbit it in the same way Apollo 8 orbited the moon before anybody landed on the moon. But if you were to throw money at the problem, you could go to Mars in 2028. By you, I mean somebody like her. Yeah. <laughs> Could go to Mars, yeah, and it would be extraordinary, you guys. And the thing, uh, you know, when we send, everybody forgets. Uh, the Russian or the Soviet space program sent robots to the moon, collected rocks from the moon, brought them back to the Earth before anybody walked there. Yeah. But it was when a human got there that people got very excited. And today's the 14th. Uh, a week, uh, six days from now is the 20th, and that's the anniversary of human landing on the moon. Okay. Yeah, we had this debate just 
recently, although it's going to be in a future show, about... <laughs> That's time travel. That's time travel, yeah. About, yeah, is it, should we even bother sending people anywhere? Should we just send robots? Like the well, we send, now. somebody's going to go. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. I think... Send robots to prep... Yeah, the environment. Sure. Oh, well, that's we always say this: uh, you, robots and humans go together. I'm of a certain age. I remember very well the Ranger <laughs> spacecraft, just cameras that flew straight into the freaking moon. It was riveting. The moon's getting closer and closer and closer, and then it goes black. Whoa, dude! <laughs> and then a Surveyor was people were wondering if the uh, foot, the feet of any landing craft on the moon would just sink into the yeah. lunar soil. But uh, they sent, we sent spacecraft that, that weighed the right amount to assess that. You don't sink into the soil, at least the places we landed. And so uh, the same is true on Mars. You know, you, you can go online and look at maps of Mars because we've thrown money at the problem. And I say throw money at it. Everybody, it's less than, or it used to be less than $2 billion a year, the planetary science program. So it was less than a hundredth of a percent of the federal budget. 9% of 0.4%, 0.036% of the federal budget to explore Mars or to explore all the planets. It's really quite a value. And plus, we're not just throwing the money away like so many other programs that the government does, but we get technology out of the whole thing. Uh, so the, they say, people get in these arguments, the only thing that you could argue is more valuable than investment in space is investment in highways and roads. The, the return on the dollar for dollar, maybe, because if you build a highway, then factories can be built at the end of the highway. And so but that's, the, the ROI on education is not that good? Education... Uh, nah. I think the ROI on education is insane. No, but I mean, I, yeah, as we say, you think education is expensive, try ignorance. You know, so... Yeah. <laughs> but, but maybe that's a big factor. So people um, take for granted or presume that you'll spend money on... Nobody says um, in the same way, is space a, isn't space a waste of money? We should be paying teacher salaries or whatever. Nobody says we should close, well, very few people say we should close public schools yeah. uh, or not support education. Problems. Yeah, it's not, the two are not mutually exclusive. Well, I was just it. saying, he was comparing ROIs. Yeah. I was just saying, yeah, I think so, the ROI is high on that. But people, you know, when they're... When everybody has a special interest and you start getting arguments in the U.S. Congress especially about what's a good value, people like to make the case that NASA either is or is not a good investment. But everybody consider that South Africa is a space program, Mexico is a space program, Great Britain's rekindling its space program, Vietnam has a space program. And they do it because... Of, or humans do it because of the need for the practical need for weather forecasting and communications, and then the extraordinary uh, value of just having a bunch of very well educated people running around your society. So, would yeah, you have discouraged Alyssa from? Heck no. no. No way. But be sure to do, Alyssa, I would say, be sure to learn physics, uh, calculus, along with the many languages. Great. Be sure to learn the rocket science. And I'm sure she will. And the, you know, the thing, if I were coming of age today, the, the discoveries are going to be made in genetics are going to just change oh, everything. Yeah. I mean, when I was growing up, it was rockets and physics. But so you're saying we need to genetically engineer space people that could... Well, there'll be people better at it than others. Yeah. For, are there any uh, fighter pilots here? You know, fighter pilots who aren't especially tall have a little bit of an advantage. <laughs> yeah. You get too tall, you're not a great fighter pilot. Because of the... 
the blood situation? Yeah, yeah. You're not, athletically, apparently, it doesn't. You can't keep your brain engaged as well. Yeah. What'd you say, Bill? You see? <laughs> hey, Evan, I have. I, if I talked to her, I'd try to see if she, how interested she is in going to the moon instead of Mars. I mean, it really seems to me that not just some people in the United States, other countries really seem to be shifting their focus away from Mars, and they're realizing that moon. If we're going to have some settlement uh, or even temporary settlements anywhere, we've got to go to the moon first and work out our stuff there. So while we're in this debate, discussion. Here we go. I opened it. (laughs) Well, it's fun. And you're voters and taxpayers. So the moon, first of all, is a so-called gravity well. It takes a lot of rocket fuel or energy to get onto the lunar surface and then back up. But the other problem is probably more important, and that's the money. At the current funding of NASA, you know, when the Apollo program sent people to the moon, NASA was about 4% of the federal budget, which is huge, huge. Now it's about a tenth of that, 0.4%. So practically, if we spend a lot of money developing a lunar landing system, you probably won't have, or it's reasonable that you won't have enough money left over to go to Mars. Now, if people decided we're going to do both, you could get her done. And then the other really important problem, political problem to solve, is what to do with the International Space Station. So we spend at least $3 billion a year maintaining it. It's cool. And the great value of the International Space Station really is diplomatic, where people from around the world go up and and hang out together. It's a tremendous value in statecraft. But it's, it's... People argue that, that you don't do that much new science. You know, it's been up there 20 years, and people have been flying around in low-Earth orbit for 50 years. And, um, you know, one of our favorite questions, how many people have flown in space? Take a guess. Altogether, uh, Russians. You can count Scott Crossfield and the 100. X-15. Yeah, 100 is pretty good. Yeah. Anyone? Anyone? It's 600. So it's no longer to boldly go where no one has gone before. It's too timidly go where 600 people have already been. <laughs> and so uh, this is a, a question. And, and the moon people argue very strongly for going to the moon. I, I get it. Uh, and the Mars people argue strongly for sending people to Mars. But the money is the thing that's – or the, the commitment of intellect yeah. and treasure has got to be figured out. Yeah, it always comes down to the money. People are going to die if they go to the to Mars first. It's 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 way it's way too risky. Practice close by. Tell Alyssa that it's way too risky. What's she going to tell you? That's what I that's what I told Gus Schmidt, who is the only scientist to ever walk on the moon. He was the last guy, last person to walk on the moon. And I said to him, "Suppose they told you you couldn't go a place you'd never been before. That it was impossible. That this was too risky." You would have gone, I'm going anyway, man. Yeah, but, you know, but they if, practice if they, first before they, yeah, they the moon, practice. The That's moon is three days away, Mars is six oh, months. Oh, this is, you're welcome to the, there you go. Yeah, you know. Like so, just, but you're, the, the problem we're all going to have to solve is the money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So either way, you're saying if we had enough money, we could do the Mars thing and, and people won't die. Yeah, and you could do the, the moon thing on the way to Mars, and you could have the space station and the moon thing and Mars. But that soon? Do you think we could go in, t- in 2027 and people won't die? 2028, yeah. If we had the budget. I mean, that's a maybe. Yeah. But, um, 2033. You could certainly go. Whether or not you'd get back is a yeah. fun question. And, but you guys, just backing up a little and talking some more, finally, about... <laughs> Me! 
Me, me, me. I am the CEO of the Planetary Society, the world's largest non-governmental space interest organization advancing space science and exploration, empowering citizens around the world to know the cosmos and our place within it. <gasps> Elevator door closes. So, there's two things that I want in my lifetime. I want to find life on another world. In my lifetime. And for that, you almost certainly do not need to send people. Right. Almost Agreed. certainly. Agreed. Maybe. But, and then the other thing is I want the Earth not to get hit with an asteroid or yeah. a big asteroid. Ooh, that's a good one. And this is a real thing. You know, when I was in second grade, Ms. McGonagall read to us that, uh, from a big book that dinosaur, the ancient dinosaurs died off because the mammals had the ability to take all their food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the rabbits took all the Tyrannosaurus's food, and the Tyrannosaurus's died. And even she just, like, closed the book, you know, like, I'm sorry, girls and boys, but I have to, I, they told me to read this. I'm sorry. But then it was in my lifetime, I was out in the workforce paying taxes when people discovered the, that an asteroid almost certainly finished them off. If volcanism was causing a lot of trouble, the air was bad, that was bad, that was bad, but what really finished them off was a big... You don't want that to happen again, an asteroid or a comet. So you, so, can, you can join the Planetary Society's yes. Kickstarter Kick Asteroid. Yes, thank you. Unsolicited endorsement. Yep. I did it. Ten, I, I did I 10 you, bucks. Man. Blow it up. You got blow it, brother. Up. Anytime, man. So uh, we have a Kickstarter campaign just to pitch us. Uh, check it out, planetary.org. It was started by Carl Sagan. He and Bruce Murray, who was the head of Jet Propulsion Lab, and Lou Friedman, who was an engineer there, decided to start the Planetary Society because they felt that public interest in space was very high, but government investment was not, as, mm-hmm. was not commensurately high. And you can argue that's still true today. Yeah. And so the Planetary Society is growing again. And as I like to say, we are realistic if you want to do something about space, if you want to be involved, if you want to be involved in building our little spacecraft, our light sail spacecraft, if you want to just learn about space, we have excellent journalists, the best in the world, at long-form journalism about the planets. And then if you want to be involved in advocating and getting, influencing government policy, we're here for you, man or woman. We are here for you. Uh, and so it's a kooky little organization that I had. It's a very important organization that I had because I have this, this thing. If we discovered life yeah. on Mars, it would change the course of history. Mm-hmm. It would be like Copernicus or Galileo or something. It would, be this, it would change your view of, of where you fit into the scheme of things. Yep. I know the universe is going to end in an instant, and we won't even know it, and that's troublesome. But in the meantime, if we could find life on another... And just think what it would do for humankind. You know, we have, although we have fewer wars than we ever used to, there's very unlikely we'll have another world war. That's very unlikely, because progressive democracies are all on the Internet or whatever. But... <laughs> yeah, no, you just no, no. It's that progressive democracies have more in common than they used to, and so there probably won't be another world war where an Axis versus Allies develops. Mm-hmm. Probably, I mean, maybe they're working on as It's not as likely. And, yeah. But all that aside, if we were to discover life on another world, it would change everybody's perspective of our relation to the cosmos. It would be, we're all in this together in, yeah. in a way that I don't think... I, 
anybody started. I agree. I think that's why I think our number one priority in space should be not not the moon or Mars, but Enceladus and Europa. Yep. Yeah. Oh, see this. So everybody, Europa has twice as much ocean water as the Earth. Yeah. And by the way, the ocean was discovered by Margie Kibelson, a woman scientist. Right on. Mm-hmm. All right. And so. Um, just while we're talking. And so, uh, What's his if you have an ocean for four minutes, <laughs> sorry, I was lying in my mouth. What'd you say? He said he, he said he loves your haircut, Bill. He said, like, who, do you, who does your hair, man? That's what we want to know. Let's keep going. Um, <laughs> wait, Evan, wind him back up. He's running low. Uh, thanks. Sorry, sorry, I'm back. Lucky you. Uh, no, we would, uh, we would make these discoveries for, you know, uh, less than 0.04% of the federal budget. It would just be amazing. And the other thing about going to the moon and Mars, if we had international missions, Mm -hmm. the cost of the overall project, sending people to Mars, sending people to the moon, whatever, would be higher, but the cost per agency or administration or corporation would be lower. It should be a world. Yeah, it should be multinational. Well, it just practically you'd like it to be multinational. So speaking of practice... This is where it's really good to have multinational missions to Mars. Just the, sure. the, um, oh my God, yeah. the time zone coordination in a common language, that alone is a big, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is a big um, cost and investment. All right. Thanks for listening, you guys. I really appreciate it. You can edit all Thank that you. out of the real book. <laughs> Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus. You guys should know by now that we love science fiction. And the cool thing about science fiction is that a lot of times, like Star Trek, the original series, is a perfect example of this. It is a mirror to the you know our present day. It shows us things about the world that we live in because the writers are using the, you know, the future to tell us what's going on today. Yeah, so you'll love the uh, this new course by Dr. David Kyle Johnson, uh, who we've had at Nexus. Jay and I did that panel with him on the philosophy of Star Wars and Star Trek. Mm. And he did a whole course on the philosophy of science fiction called Sci-Fi, Science Fiction as Philosophy, where he goes into not only Star Wars and Star Trek, but the Twilight Zone, Black Mirror, and a lot more. It is a lot of fun, very interesting If you like philosophy and science fiction, this course is for you. So with the Great Courses Plus, guys, you'll get unlimited access, unlimited, to stream their entire library of courses on topics that interest you from history, science, hobbies, chess, photography, cooking. I mean, there's just so much. It's an endless supply. You can listen probably for decades and still have plenty to go. (laughs) And you can listen anytime, (laughs) anywhere. You can listen on your iPad, your phone, your computer, your sonic screwdriver, your pip boy. I mean what 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 anything. <laughs> we know you're going to love the Great Courses Plus as much as we do, and today they're giving listeners a special limited time offer. It's a full month of unlimited access for free. But to get the free month, you have to sign up at the greatcoursesplus.com/skeptics. Again, that's the greatcoursesplus.com/skeptics for this limited time offer. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. This is the science news item of, that came out during the conference. You know, this is of the week, really. This is the science news item. Um, scientists have discovered high-energy ghost particle. Mm-hmm. So what's the ghost particle, right? We, it's, all, it's a neutrino. That's, that's the particle that barely interacts with anything else. You know, you can travel for trillions of miles. 
before it has a chance of interacting. I, you guys with, just stop and think about that sentence yeah. you just tossed up. Well, it's a neutrino. Yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just that we all accept that they exist and they were discovered. And it's yeah. just fantastic. You know, as, uh, as Obama said, if you, if you couldn't choose where you could be born at any point in human history or the history of the earth, this would be the time. Yeah. I mean, that it's we all even the know the word neutrino is yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, and just accept it. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, here's but a ghost we, particle. Yeah, what we neutrino. Let, let me break it down. What we didn't know was where high energy gamma rays are coming from. We know that they're coming from great distances. We can detect them coming in, they hit the atmosphere and they kick off a whole bunch of particles. How do we know they're coming from great distances? Well, because we can tell from the direction that they're like not coming from within our, the plane of our solar system, for example. We know they're not terrestrial, so they're probably coming. They're not within the plane of our galaxy, and therefore they're probably extragalactic. Are they all coming in roughly parallel to each other? No, they're coming in from all over the place. Yeah, you see what I mean? If they were all coming parallel, then you would expect a source. One source. Well, yeah, yeah. right. One source. Yeah. This is cool. Go on. Yeah. Read on. But there's an interesting reason why we can't pinpoint their source. What is that interesting reason? It's very interesting because they're highly charged, which means that even the spread out magnetic fields in the intervening space, galactic magnetic fields, would alter their trajectory. And of course, if you imagine something traveling over millions, maybe billions of light years, if you tweak its path even a little bit in some random direction, you now have no idea where it came from. That translates to very vast differences. So we couldn't really pinpoint the source. We couldn't pinpoint the source of a gamma ray because we, don't, we couldn't really know what direction it was coming in. The direction it was coming in from was different than its source because it was twisted and turned along the way somewhere. But, okay. see what you're doing. Right. see what I'm doing? So we need, so we need some way to detect a gamma ray and then know where it came from. You can't do it with the gamma ray itself. So what, did, what were scientists looking for? They were looking for a companion particle, something that is coming from the same source that we could pinpoint, and that's where neutrinos come in. Because the, the presumption is that they don't get deflected. Because they don't have a charge. They don't have a charge. Right, they don't have a charge. They have very little mass. They don't interact a lot with matter. So they go in a perfectly straight line, even over billions of light years. So they just go through stuff? They go right through stuff. In fact, we count on that. It's about, there's about a billion going through you right now. Yeah. I like it. And another yeah. one, another billion right now. I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, yeah. Neutrinos are passing through us all the time. So, okay. Now. Hi, this is Steve breaking in. I hope you're enjoying our live show at Nexus. I just had to say I made a mental error when reporting on this story. I was talking about gamma rays, but I meant to say cosmic rays the whole time. This story is about cosmic rays. Not gamma rays. So every time you hear me say gamma ray in this news story, substitute cosmic ray. Sorry for the mistake. Let's get back to the show. We focus on Ice Cube. Ice Cube is a neutrino detector in Antarctica. And it's essentially an array of sensors. There's like sensors on the surface, and then they have like these beads on a string, like basketball size. Is this the tank of water that they have, that gigantic? No, no. Super, no? That's a different one. This okay. is this. The ice Frozen. is the detector. Oh, okay. Right? So you have this me- they use the ice as both a shield and a, de- and a detector, right? So what are the detectors detecting? That's a good question. So they're, they're detecting the really tiny chance that a neutrino is going to hit the nucleus of a water molecule, of an atom that's part of a water molecule, 
and directly enough that it will interact with it. And when that happens, it kicks off a high-energy particle. Um, a muon. So a muon, right. It, either, well, so, it, could either, uh, it could either kick off an electron, a muon, or a tau particle. Um, the, and they have different properties. The, the tau particles and the electrons tend to produce this scattering effect when they hit, but the muon gives you a track, just like a straight line trace. And that's very useful, because if you get a straight line, you can backtrack to the source. So what they detected uh, recently, September of 2017 actually, they detected a neutrino striking a detector, kicking off a muon, producing this blue light straight line trace. Um, and then they have, it's, it, this is this, we don't have time to go into this too much, but there's constantly muons hitting the detectors. Most of them are from gamma rays, which also kick off muons. But they do what Bill was getting me to do before. They say, well, first of all, we'll ignore anything that's coming down from the sky, because that could be from muons. We're only going to count ones that are coming up from through the earth, you know, from coming the, through the earth. Yeah. yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. And then, <laughs> Yeah, then they, 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 they filter out all of the non-neutrino sources in, in those, the progressively the way in those do. ways. Yep. Yeah, until they, <laughs> until they have a likely, a likely neutrino source. And for this one, they also had a good muon trace in the detector, and they, they back-tracked you know, it to one tiny little patch of space, and right in the middle of that space... Do you know what was there? Something that they previously knew about. There was a previously detected blazar. A you guys blazar. ever heard of a blazar? <laughs> Except in space, there's no sound. I have to say, before, before this news item, I'd never heard of a blazar, I must admit. I did, but I, I forgot what it was. Yeah. It's so, the coolest word. I mean, astronomers have, I mean, yeah. big, I don't know. dark matter. Magnetron. Magnetar. Magnetar. Magnetar sounds very cool blazar. as well. Yeah. So blazar. tell us about a blazar, Steve. Yeah, so you have a <laughs> galaxy with a supermassive black hole in the middle. And supermassive black holes like to eat stuff, right? They like to eat matter. And they have massive gravitational fields close by. And so the, the matter around them is swirling in so fast and so hot with How such high energy. How fast and swirly is it? It's so swirly that you get these two jets of gamma rays coming out either of the poles of the swirling black hole. And these jets, they're not sure how this happens. They're not sure how this happens. Complex, yeah. But they accelerate both neutrinos and gamma rays to near the speed of light. Right? You can't obviously get all the way up to the speed of light if you have any mass, but they get near the speed of light. That's the high energy gamma rays, the high energy neutrinos spewing out of these uh, supermassive black holes. Now, if they happen to be aimed at the Earth, if one of these jets is pointing at us, that's a blazar. Because it's blazing, right? <laughs> Um, just, just like a neutron star, if it's, with jazz it's pointing towards us and it's a pulsar, it's a pulsar. Yeah, we know it's a pulsar. and it's rotating. Yeah. So is it dangerous in any way? Not I've a very distant galaxy. Yeah, if you, were, if you lived in the galaxy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they said right in the middle of the space where the neutrino was coming from, there is a known blazar. So they immediately sent out the bat signal to the astronomers around the world, saying, "Look at this space and see what you see." And then a couple of gamma ray detectors detected a highly active gamma ray source coming from the blazar in the middle of the oh, zone. Oh, man. So it all seems to line up pretty nicely. So now what can we do with that information? So then what they did was they looked back at their archival data, and they found neutrinos coming from the exact same source. 
which you would expect, because it wouldn't just be happening once, right? It should be happening over time. So we know more about how stars are formed and the life That's cycle of stars. Know, yeah, and yeah this, this gives us information you know, about galaxies and supermassive black holes, et cetera. The, the real mystery they're trying to figure out is how are these neutrinos and gamma rays being accelerated to such a high right. speed? And cosmic rays, high energy. Cosmic yeah. rays in general is kind of a mystery. Some of them are so high energy that we can't... It, we can't do it on Earth. We can't yeah. possibly create them on Earth. There's some natural process that yeah. has such tremendous energy. We don't know what, so it could be. So now we gems. know for sure. This is the first time we figured out a source. A point, you know, that is the source of a high-energy gamma ray. So now they can start to figure out how it's producing the high-energy gamma rays. Right? And, so that's, that's the advance. That's, for that's decades, the, this was a mystery. We, they had, yeah. we, had, we never were able to track a high-energy gamma ray back to its source to then investigate how it's being created. This is now the first step, the first time and we tracked it back. Because of the multi-messenger messenger yes. astronomy, which is say that. yeah, new type of astronomy, multi, not really that new, but I mean, it's a rising form of astronomy, multi-messenger astronomy, where you're using multiple detectors of multiple different kinds of particles to, in order to tell a much more thorough story. Or gravitational waves. Gravitational really waves, it doesn't have to be particles, or gravitational waves, and neutrinos, and light, and gamma rays, or whatever, and getting a much fuller picture of whatever's happening. So this is exciting. This is really exciting. So Australia just started a space agency. Yeah. They just uh, created a space agency, and you cannot really do this kind of astronomy without detectors in the southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And uh, Australia's very mature uh, civilization with roads and cars and things, and so... No, really, it's, it's an important thing. You've got to have infrastructure to build these big instruments. And so... They have a space agency because they know the great value to their society. And then people say, what are you going to do when you find out where high-energy gamma rays come from? Well, what is that going to, what invention is going to happen, going to be created? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> but something cool will come up. I mean, I'm of an age, I remember when lasers were invented and had no application. Yeah, yeah what are they for? Good yeah, yeah, <laughs> now like, lasers are literally in your pen for writing your laser letter. Uh, <laughs> but it's just who knows where this kind of research will lead we'll just learn right. more it's about a silly question first of all right. we just want to know all right? right. but it costs money to build in a detector <laughs> yeah, in an arc and a cubic kil kilometer of ice I mean, just even looking back at the last hundred years there's so much downstream stuff that happens from the knowledge that we well, gained that no one ever anticipated I know you're not you're just my grandparents didn't know anything about relativity yeah they lived their most of their productive lives without any knowledge of relativity now we, I mean, most of us cannot tell for sure really which side of the street we're standing on without looking at our phones. And the phone is getting its information from space, and those spacecraft depend on both general and yes. special relativity to work. It's amazing. Who knows what's next, people? Yeah. Also, the next, Steve, the next GPS, whatever that is. But also, if you, if, you, if you can't get behind the pure joy of scientific discovery with even no potential product that you could play with, then I, 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 don't, I don't know if I want to even know you because, <laughs> well, come on, if you can't well, get you, behind that. Yeah. You meet a lot awesome. of people that don't want to invest I, in science. There's a lot of people I don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> so I have some good news. I got my VR system back up and running in my office. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That was a rough two months now. And one of, your, one of your transmitter receivers broke, one right? Of my reason, one of my wall things, shit, I shit the bed. Oh, no. I had to replace it. Um, so it's up and running, and I'm playing a VR zombie game in Arizona Sunshine because I wanted to desensitize myself to zombies? zombies in case the zombie apocalypse happens. <laughs> what a coincidence, Steve. Right? Was this going to work, Jay? 
I think you want, yeah. a, you want a life-work balance. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't want to ignore zombies. Right. Because they're danger. I mean, I'm, they're trouble. Yeah. You know? I used to work for one. <laughs> uh, but you also don't want to be just so afraid you can't act. Right. Yeah. Right. You don't want to hesitate. You don't want to be. So, uh, in the Lancet Psychiatry website, apparently uh, VR is not just for gaming. They have found a way to use VR to help people that have a fear of heights. So, in the picture, you're seeing uh, a person who is, in, in one of their examples, they have to save the cat. And, you know, from the people that are on the ground floor, it's pretty high up. And that's scary. So clinical trials have been, <clears throat> excuse me, underway trying to help people overcome their, their fear of heights. And what they decided to do was create this study. It's a two-week study. There was 100 <laughs> participants, and 49 of the participants were, were using standard, um, normal, you know, person-to-person -person, uh, communication to talk about their fear of heights. And the rest of them were using a avatar-based VR, uh, get-rid-of-your-fear-of-heights simulator that they created. But is it real enough to actually desensitize? Yeah, so Steve, when he first got his VR headset, I think I may have mentioned this on the show, there is a thing on there that uh, lets you experiment with flying around a city, and there's all sorts of things that you could do. But one thing that they have, it's called the plank. And you go up to, I think, the 40th floor. What's and it called again? The plank. And you go up in the virtual world. You go Fire up, in, you're in, a, in an elevator, and the door is open, mm -hmm. and it opens into open air, except there's a, like a pirate's walk the plank plank in mm -hmm. front of you. And you have to walk out on the plank. So Steve's like, Jay, you got to try it. You know, other people let's have been trying it. Yeah, let's see what happened. When Jay... Oh, there, do we have dramatic video? Yeah, yes. right behind you. So I'm on the ground floor here, and I'm hitting, I'm hitting number six on the elevator door, which is the plank. Is there any elevator music? There we go. Now, keep your eye on me at this point. It's so real that you couldn't move. You have to take it off. And there he goes. It's out. He failed. <laughs> <laughs> it's really something. Yeah. It got to you. It was so sensorily compelling yeah. that you couldn't handle it. So I tried, I tried it. Uh, no, I, I still can't really do it. I've tried it many times. Like I, you did it. You so, kind of did. No, I did. I did it, but I, I cheated. I closed my eyes. So this one asks you to walk the plank. Yeah. yeah so. So I did. I went to a VR conference. Yeah. For health health professionals using VR for exposure therapy, and they had a simulation where you're meant to step off of the. Oh plank. yeah, you could step yeah, off. Yeah, we did. That's part yeah. of that. That was like the whole. It started yeah, with you, and then it was like build up until you can take a dive off. Yeah. And that was really difficult. Okay. What's when you take step off the plank? Where where do you, you go? Fall. You fall. To the and you hit. Fall you, where? To the ground, so, yeah, you hit the ground. Fall into a happy. Nothing really road. happens at that point. You just it just goes dark. But, but Bill, what does happen like when you yeah. hit the ground? You're standing there. You know, I'm standing in the room, and I and I finally was able to jump off the plank. And when you hit the ground, you actually you know you brace yourself <laughs> for impact. It's yeah, amazing. but it is. It's, it's amazing. It's the most. It's so visceral. You. It's shocking. I mean, I've I've jumped out of a plane, gone parasailing, paragliding. I've done all that. I was hard for me. To, I did it a lot quicker than Jay. I mean, yeah. I did it, but it took it took a you know a force of will to actually do that. It was amazing how immersed you are. Yeah, your lizard brain fully buys that you are yep. you know you're being threatened and that you are at a height and you know, you actually are like balancing yourself on the imaginary plank even though you're on a carpeted floor in an office somewhere. Well, yeah, that's yeah. the odd thing about it. Because it totally works. You're and everyone that I've put through the plank experience has had the same experience. This is an amazing. Example, or, or you know, this is you with your lizard brain and your cerebral cortex yeah. fighting each other. 
And, you know, I've been practicing becoming a rational thinker for, you know, 25 years at this point, 30 years. Yeah, we're, and, all, we're all kind of waiting for that. Yeah, I know. It hasn't <laughs> Bill called me up at 11 o'clock at night. Jay, did it happen yet? No, Bill. <laughs> but the point is, like Steve said, like I couldn't overcome the lizard brain. No. I was, I was really, really You failed at the pain frightened. box yeah. and you would have had my gom jabbar. Yeah, that's right. You were but not this gets back to the, you know, <laughs> the old saying in the... Um, Science education is that your eyes are the only part of the brain that you can see. So, in other words, your right. your eyes or your visual system is so important yeah. or so compelling. And most most psychologists who do exposure therapy, which is what you're talking about, also have you wear noise canceling headphones that have either the soundtrack of the room you're in, just yes. to fully mm-hmm. immerse you in the experience. Yeah. Or, or if on the building you hear the yeah. yeah. Well, for a couple of people. We when, put the fan on. Yeah, well, as soon as the elevator doors open, I put a fan on them. It makes perfect sense. Multi-sensory experience. But the it's fun thing about it, when you're in the room you watching people do it, yeah. um, like when our friend Brian Trent did it, like the doors opened, and he was all like cocksure, you know, like he just wanted to, I told him I couldn't do it. So yeah. he was like, I'm going to do it. And the doors open, and he just, he verbally goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, yep. We did it to George Robb. He yeah. did it, but he was like, whoa, this is, this is so real. Yeah. So is uh, uh, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe going to be an immersive experience? In, yeah. in I would years? love to do the show in virtual reality. Yeah. So or two years, let's say five years when the technology is like uh, Probably, video I games. think we should check to make sure people want that first. <laughs> <laughs> My understanding, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty new to virtual reality systems, but you can take them off. Yes. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. And it takes a while to orient to them, especially if it's like 360 video. Yeah. You have to find what, which way is up. You have to find the action. I actually, and I, I hate to interject, but early on when I was starting to do a lot of science journalism, I had the opportunity to visit the um, USC Institute for Creative Technologies, and they were doing some military VR training. And this was when you had to wear the, the backpack. <laughs> And there was like antennas sticking off the yeah. VR helmet. And we did this really cool training where it was supposed to look like Afghanistan and you were going into bunkers to clear them, just opening the door, checking to see if anybody's in there and moving on to the next bunker. And one of the biggest difficulties with VR is that you bump into things because you don't, you're not aware of the actual <laughs> space you're in. You're only aware of your virtual space. Yep. So they did this ingenious thing where they would algorithmically move the door ever so slightly when you would exit the bunker. Like visually, your body couldn't tell that the door was moved because visually you could see where the door was and you would walk out. And it ended up, you would do this series of going into these eight bunkers and it ended up walking you in a path. In a circle, you mean? Yeah, Yeah, and so when you were inside the bunker, it felt like you were on a concrete floor and they built a gravel floor when you were outside the bunker and you were walking this path mm-hmm. with this real intense somatosensory yeah. feedback from the, the flooring. And, and, and there, so there are real. basically uh, companies now that have VR game rooms, right? A room this size where they actually have physical walls and barriers and what that map to the virtual ones. I know there's one in New York. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's that could that could be a cool. Experience. So, did you guys enjoy Ready Player One? Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, good. yeah. yeah. Good. Not quite there yet, but yeah. Yeah, well, we, just in about that movie, I was never concerned that our hero was going to not make it to the end. Yeah. yeah. I had Spoiler a good alert. feeling. He was the book, the book really was much better than. Yeah, the movie. Right, well, that's the nature so, of. I didn't finish my news item. You want me to just cruise through this real quick? Oh, there's more. Well, there's, there's just details about you the studies. You don't have to so, be real quick. Give us the bottom line. Well, we do have 15 minutes. Yeah, we are really short. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is that 
what they're doing is they're, they're testing the, you know, how well or effective is this, and then they're going to test it against, you know, talking yeah. face-to-face with a human. Established therapy. But everybody that took the test after two weeks of therapy said that they had an amazing benefit yeah. shown by it. And the, the way that they do it very quickly is they have you on floor one, and you just have to look over, and you bend over, and you have a guardrail. And then floor two, it's a little more dangerous. And floor three, it's a little more dangerous. Until the top floor, you're walking on a floating disc, that's, you know, you have to like step out onto the disc and be free floating yeah. with just your feet on a very small thing that's floating in midair, which is like, if you could do, do that. Do you put your arms out to keep your balance kind of thing? Yeah, I did when I did the plank thing, yeah, without yeah. a doubt. Oh, yeah. Yep. All right, Bob. So uh, every now and then a science news item is published where they say, we've proven Einstein right again. Has that happened or have we finally proven Einstein wrong? <laughs> well, I was debating whether to start with the result, maybe I'll kind of be a little bit ambiguous, but uh, Einstein's theory of gravity has faced its toughest test ever. Um, basically, it was, uh, this was an impossible test to perform on Earth. It was really, uh, thank you, it was really, um, it was more, it was actually an order of magnitude more precise than, than any test has ever been done. So they really put, you know, put Einstein's feet to the fire on this one. So it was actually very, very similar to, to Galileo's famous, uh, um, you know, Leaning Tower of Pisa, where he dropped the two spheres. And, uh, but uh, did you guys know that he, that was a more of a, the general consensus is that was a thought experiment. He didn't really actually go out there yeah. and, and do oh, yeah. it. Yeah, that was a thought experiment. If you want to see a dramatic example of that, watch David Scott, um, Apollo 15 astronaut on, in, on YouTube, doing the famous hammer and feather. He smuggled a condor on, feather on the moon. The moon. <laughs> Amazing. It's really a striking test uh, because, of course, in the, near, in the vacuum on the moon, it just goes... They both go yeah, away. you can simulate that on right. Earth. They can, they, I've seen it done in a vacuum, yes, too. right. Those yeah. are... Amazing rooms. Okay, so of course Einstein, Einstein as well embodied this whole idea in general relativity that mass, you know, your mass or, or composition is irrelevant, and that's the strong equivalence pr- principle. And but the idea, you can't help but thinking, all right, now what would it take? What if we pushed that strong equivalence principle to it to you know to the nth degree? What would happen? And so, for example, what if I stood up on here and I took a, a white dwarf and a neutron star and dropped them onto the, onto the desk? For example, what would happen? And sure, we'd all die, but if, you know, think, of, think of the science. It's all about the science. So, um, but that's, that's basically what they did. They found this fascinating, uh, what I call a trinary zombie uh, solar system. It's three stellar corpses, essentially, rotating around each other. One is a pulsar and a white dwarf around, in, a, in a one and a half day orbit. And that system was in a 360-day orbit, and that system was in, i got to use my hands, that, day, that was in a 360- or 327-day orbit around another white dwarf. So, and the tool they used was the most powerful, this is the GBT, or Green Bank Telescope in Virginia, which is the, uh, the most sensitive radio telescope on the, on the planet. That's in West Virginia, I think, right? Yeah. No, it's, if you're from that area, it's very important to you. Okay, no, okay, thank you. Um, Anne Archibald had a quote, she said, uh, regarding how accurate it was. We can account for every single pulse of the neutron star since we, we began our observations. Uh, we can tell its location to within a few hundred meters, which is amazing. So they use this supremely sensitive tool to, to essentially track this neutron star falling towards the, the more distant uh, uh, white dwarf. But they're going in 360 days? They're going around each other? About, yeah, 327, 327 days. I mean, just imagine the energy that must be involved. Neutron stars whoop, 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 going around each other, except in space well, again. Exa- exactly. So, so the hope, though, is that 
Einstein would fail utterly. I mean, that, that was my hope. That's a lot of people's hopes in this situation, that Einstein would fail. Uh, and because a failure of Einstein points to new physics, and that's what a lot of people Quantum are. Quantum gravity? Is a, a lot of people are, are, well, not necessarily in this situation, but yeah, new physics. And th there is precedent for this. This, ha this has happened in the past. New Newtonian mechanics was ruled the day. Uh, you know, in the, a century ago and more before before relativity and quantum mechanics, and it, but of course we found out that Newtonian mechanics fails when you get things get really extreme, really heavy, really fast. Uh, it kind of falls apart, and that's where that's where relativity comes in. Quantum mechanics comes in when things get get really small. So that was that that was kind of the hope that something like that could come in and uh, subsume. Relativity, the way relativity kind of subsumed Newtonian mechanics. So, and the result, of course, it's no surprise what probably happened is that uh, when they studied that neutron star falling, it tracked with general relativity precisely. There was uh, no deviation at all. And uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't eventually get some new physics out of something like that, because as you know, but as tight as these constraints were for this test, um, anything that would uh, be more accurate would need to be, I think this test made it like three parts per million. So you'd have to be pretty much identical to, G, to general relativity, but be able to handle you know, something that, that's a little bit more extreme. But it's probably not going to happen because it's... But it's possible that new physics won't break relativity, that general relativity... No, um, well, just like, just like relativity. Relativity, actually, relativity, if you use relativity, it will predict everything Newtonian mechanics Yeah, does. but it did break Newtonian mechanics because it was insufficient. Right. But it may be that whatever we're looking for isn't going to break general relativity no. in the same way that Newtonian mechanics were so broken. Guys, By definition, it would have to So uh, just along GR. this line, if a new, bigger accelerator, particle accelerator, is required to investigate this, it's very reasonable that it will be built in China. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're here in the U.S. conducting this in English or American English. If you want to motivate people in uh, Congress or the administration, just remind them that these fundamental breakthroughs could be made overseas, right. and then people get all excited. Yeah. And I am so old, how old are you? I remember when they were going to build a superconducting yeah. super collider in Texas, yeah. and yeah. these physicists went to Congress and they said, well, we're going to investigate the nature of uh, the Higgs boson and where the massivity of uh, particles, blah, 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 blah. and Congress just sort of tuned out. Yeah. So if you get a chance next time, why do you want to build this great big collider? Because we will make the next fundamental discovery in all of nature. Now you have to say, because we cannot afford a collider gap. Yeah. That's right, a collider gap. Right? You guys, there's, there's something to the collider gap. Yeah. 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 So a fun story, just unrelated, but for me, as a lumper, closer related, I was at um, Los Alamos, where they have a linear accelerator made of this crazy pure copper tubing, and they shoot protons uh, in English units about a quarter of a mile, half a kilometer, straight at tungsten or wolfram to spallate neutrons. Mm -hmm. Do you guys know spalling when bricks, bricks flake off? But and they weren't happy with the word spall, they have to spallate. They got to take. You can't comment. You have to commentate. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I said to the and so they do this to maintain the supply of heavy water, which is used as a jacket around plutonium weapons to increase their boomativity, their yield. <laughs> and um, I said to the guy who was taking a sermon, well, how much, how much heavy water is there in a plutonium weapon? 
He said, oh, about, uh, I can't tell you. <laughs> and I remember my head whipped around so fast my sunglasses kind of flew off. <laughs> and so uh, just think, you guys, what's next? If we, if we understand relativity at this level, just think what's, what we're looking for next. Neutrinos coming from this distant oh, place. Oh, we think about it every day. Just what's next? I mean, the great, there's some great discovery just waiting to be made. It's exciting, and I'm delighted that relativity was verified all the more solidly. Way to go, verifiers. <laughs> all right. Well, everyone, we're going to take a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Lisa. Sleep is probably one of the most important things that we could do every day. I'm telling you guys, I can actually sleep better on this Lisa mattress. So Lisa has a mission, if you haven't noticed, and that is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 that they sell. That's more than 26,000 mattresses and counting. Wow. Also, together with the Arbor Day Foundation, Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell and are committed to planting one million trees by 2025. And right now, Lisa is offering summer savings. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash skeptics. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash skeptics for $160 off. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Kara, instead of what's the word, we're going to play a fun game. Yes. Tell us what, how it works. So I am going to give a definition, and then everybody who's sitting on stage is going to write down what they think the word is that matches that definition. So if you have to invent a word, that's okay. And then you're going to you're gonna do it as fast as you can with good handwriting. You're going to give them all to me, and I'm going to read them all, and the audience is going to single clap, guess which one is the right one. Should we so write our name on top? First definition, so read it, read it. Um, you can, is the flora and fauna living on the surface of sediments lying on the bottom of a body of water. All right? The flora and fauna living on the surface of sediments lying on the bottom of a body of water. All right, here we go. The flora and fauna living on the surface of sediments lying on the bottom of a body of water. Sub, sub, floral, latral. <laughs> this one's been scratched out five times. <laughs> Immunobiology. Oh, limnobiology. Limnobiology. Suprasedimentary. Super sedimentary. What, what's so hard about to understand about being legible people? Yeah. Epibenthos. Bumble puff. It's definitely a bumble puff. And flosserfin. Ah, uh, yes. So it might take too long to get an audience vote out of all of these. I'm worried about that. So instead, did any of them stand out to you guys on the panel? What do you think was the right one? The one that had biology in it. The one that limno, had the limnobiology. 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 Yeah, I suppose. All right. So who, all wrong. who was limnobiology? Oh, Bill. Nice, Bill. Yeah, Bill. Because so. when you read it first, I'm pretty sure you said lakes. I said body of water. Oh, body of water. Mm. Yeah. It's also written right in front of you. So the flora, yeah, the oh, flora oh, and fauna fine. living on the surface of sediments, lying on the floor of a oh, body like of water. Super sedimentary now. What's the real word? Epibenthos. Uh -oh. Epibenthos. Epi the surface of the benthos. A pond, uh -huh, and benthos is the depth of the yeah. sea. Yeah, yeah. Epibenthos. Right. That was good, though. Yeah. Some of those were really believable. All right, let's one, do another one. one yeah, we can only do one more because you guys are too one slow. 
Let's do it. Let's move forward. All right. This next one, a plant or animal species in which individual organisms have male or female reproductive organs, but not both. Does that make sense? Within the species, some individuals have male reproductive organs, some individuals have female reproductive organs, but individuals don't typically have both. What kind of species is that? Bumblepod. <laughs> All right. Yeah, they're coming quicker. I like it. All right. Monosexual. Nut puppet theatrical. <laughs> A boring night. Polyaphroditic. Dioecious. Monofuntimulus. Monofuntimulus. Is there monaphroditic? Go ahead. There was a monoaphroditic. I think polyaphroditic. Yeah, oh, there was a polyaphroditic, there was a monosexual. I think dioecious. There was a dioecious and a polyaphroditic. Yeah, polyaphroditic, monosexual, monofuntimulus. <laughs> Not puppet theatricals. What are we thinking? You think dioecious? Yeah, poly, whatever. People are liking dioecious? It is. It's dioecious. But it's spelled really interestingly. D-I-O-E-C-I-O-U-S. As opposed to monoecious, it comes from the Latin die for two and the Greek oikos, which means house. And this is a plant or animal species in which individual organisms have either God, male I thought it was a goddess or somebody, the way you yeah, spell it. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's interesting. That was fun. We yeah. have more of those. We'll do them. We'll do yeah, them we'll save them for episodes. another show, I think. Yeah. That was fun. All right. All right. We have just have time for a quick science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. There is a theme which will be revealed at the end. Here we go. Item number one. A 2017 survey finds that 29% of Americans believe aliens are visiting the Earth and 51% believe there was a conspiracy to kill JFK. Item number two. James Dewar was a British physicist, not a physicist. He was an actual <laughs> physicist. Um, hired by the Royal Society to investigate claims to the discovery of N-rays. And item number three, Wilhelm von Osten claimed not only that his horse, Clever Hans, not Clever Franz, that was a totally different word, <laughs> Clever Hans could count, but could read, tell time, and interpret music theory. So which one of those is the fiction? Two of them are real, one is fiction. Oh, yeah. Right. So first, we're going to poll the audience very quickly. Which we're going to do the George Robb method. When I do this, you clap. Single clap. A single clap. So who thinks the conspiracy theory one is the fiction? Who thinks that the James Dewar one is the fiction? And who thinks that the Clever Hans one is the fiction? Thank you. That's great help. Okay. Thanks. 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 They, right. they were doing like preparing for this before we came on stage, for you sure. Think so? Yeah, that was All right. Like, that was good. You guys did a great job. All right, so we're going to quickly go from left to right, uh, and just give me a quick answer, guys. Which one do you think is the fiction? Quick. All right, I'm going to say that the um, the first one, the 29. I think basically 29 percent and 54 percent are horrible, but actually it's more horrible. I think those numbers are even higher. I think they're too low. Okay. Too low. Kara, what do you think? Uh, I might have. Uh, Quickly, I feel like these are all science. I've read all of these before. How? Really? 
How is this possible? Hmm. I know about Clever Hans, and I know the counting, and I know it was fake, but I didn't... Reading, tell, telling time, but all that stuff has to do with... Ah, and James Dewar, he might be the guy. You might have just given us a different name with the N-Rays, but there was an N-Rays thing. G-W-A. I'm going to go with Bob. I'm going to go with G-W-A. Bob and say that it was probably... You flipped the numbers. Okay, Jay. Uh, definitely the first one, the, the uh, surveys and the... Uh, That's the yes. And you think they're, they're also too low? No, I, I, I'm the opposite of Bob. I think they're too high. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Do you know Americans? <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? The survey one, fiction. Okay. <laughs> I like right. forced in this. I think it's the survey one, too, because the numbers are too precise. 51%, 29% is too precise. Doer, there is a doer which is used for, it's a thermos. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if the guy, I don't remember if his first name was James, but that would be about the time N-rays were going on, so they probably hired him to do that. And then if Von Olsten, Osten was a mentalist using his horse, and then, okay, he'd have all sorts of extraordinary claims. So I'm going to go number one is fiction. All right, so let's see how you influence the audience. If you think that the conspiracy one is the fiction, clap. Uh, James Dewar is the fiction, clap. And Wilhelm von Osten is the fiction, clap. So you had a strong influence on the audience. Um, Yes, I did. Well, well, take them in reverse order. Um, Wilhelm von Osten claimed not only that his horse, Clever Hans, could count, but could read, tell time, and interpret music theory. Everyone thinks this one is science. The majority of the audience thinks thinks this one is science. And this one is science. It had to be. Good good reason to count if you can't apply it to reading, telling time, and music theory. So why not? But all he did is go like this with his Yes, all he did was clap his hoof. And, and so I, when I heard the story for the longest time, I thought it was just that he could count and maybe do math. But what, what Von Osten did was had like a letter board where you clump a certain number of times for a letter. And once you do that, you can right. spell things out. So the horse could read, speak in sentences. And then when you have him ask him questions about what time it is, he could tell you what time it is. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, interpret Maybe music theory because the horse was reading Austin. There's no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it turns out he was reading von Austin. So then they took him out of the picture, and he still could do it. And then this the scientific community was like, "Well, this must be real." Um, except so one guy, community. one guy said, "Like, okay, let's take everybody who knows the answer out of the room." And then he power went away. So properly controlled, the phenomenon vanished. But it took. A while to, to figure out this one was was uh, a hoax. Not a hoax, it was just self-deception. The clever Hans effect is so iconic. All right, let's go to number two. James Dewar was a British physicist hired by the Royal Society to investigate claims for the discovery of N-rays. You all think on the stage that this one is science. The majority of the audience thinks this one is science. And this one is the fiction. Oh, who was who did who investigate Emirates? It? it was Wood, French guy. Who was it? Was uh, Robert Wood? Robert Wood was was a physicist, an American physicist at Johns Hopkins, who was hired by Nature to investigate the discovery. But Woods of and Dewar both have a W. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and there's a, but there's a reason why the fact that he was American is important to the story. So very quickly, after the discovery of X-rays in, by Röntgen in Germany, the French said, we have to discover our own rays. So uh, they discovered N-rays, and named after Nancy France. They did all these experiments showing you know, all the features of N-rays, 
but the problem was that only French physicists could detect N-rays. The Germans couldn't and the British couldn't. So they hired an American to break the tie. So Wood went to the lab, uh, and, and it was Blondlot, Blondlot's lab, and uh, it, just like with von, von Osten, introduced proper controls into the experiments, and the phenomenon vanished. And in, in one little paper, one-page paper to Nature magazine where he published his results, completely ended the phenomenon of N-rays, which is probably, probably why most of you have never heard of it. Did, All right. did we write about this in our book and none of us That's a good question. Read the we'll, get to that. we'll get back to that. <laughs> I don't know which one. That wasn't my chapter. <laughs> That's right. It wasn't your chapter. The 2017 survey finds that 29% of Americans believe aliens are visiting the Earth and 51% believe there was a conspiracy to kill JFK. Is, of course, science. Those are the correct numbers. Um, I think they're, they're not overly precise. I think they're precise to the number of people. They didn't have like, if they said 51.876 percentage of the people, you would have a point, Bill. But I think, <laughs> but this is that's just a point. 52, right? Yeah, right. you would More than half, more than half of people still believe that there was a conspiracy to kill JFK. It's remarkable. amazing. Well, we, it, it, if you've ever been to the, the building in yeah. Dallas, it's, the shot, due respect, I'm not a marksman, but a person could do it. They could do it, yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the grassy knoll, is, it's not a knoll, it's right there. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's next to the road. But still, I think just the, the, it's so, it was just extraordinary yeah. that the most influential guy in the world, was somebody could just shoot him with a mail order, right? It just seems... Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so I can, uh, and the word conspiracy, let's say more than one person. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, I yeah. can see where people would accept right. that. Yeah. Right. All right. Now, Kara, you asked a very interesting question. And in fact, yes. Uh, <laughs> all of these are facts that you could learn in much greater detail if you uh, purchase and read The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe book, which is coming out October 2nd. So this is all just a clever way for me to plug our book. Um, but I, I did pick those from chapters that I wrote that these guys didn't read. And that's why they were like vaguely familiar. <laughs> Don't forget like, the subtitle. I yeah. feel like, like I read pretty, these I'm pretty before. sure the table of contents says N-rays. Yeah. <laughs> the subtitle is How to Know What's Really Real in a World Increasingly Full of Fake. But you see, that's just what they would write on. <laughs> Just what they wanted to think. <laughs> Wait a minute. What sort of sick game are you people playing? <laughs> Evan, take us home with a quote. Remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and wonder about what makes the universe exist. Be curious, and however difficult life may seem, there is always something you can do and succeed at. The late, great Stephen Hawking. Thank you, Evan. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, really thank, you. Thank, you. thank you guys for joining me. Thank you all for coming to Nexus, the 10th Nexus. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions. 
dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. Thank you.